Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Thrive Neurosport podcast series hosted by myself, Katie Mitchell. I'm a PhD candidate, registered physiotherapist, and certified athletic therapist. And on this podcast series, we are discussing the latest research in concussion education, management, and rehabilitation to thrive on in sport and life. Today for episode four, I'm really excited to have Megan Shear Adams on the podcast. Megan's research examines the effects of concussion on how people integrate thinking, moving, and sensing the world around them. She specifically focuses on how complex integrative processes and the neural networks associated with these processes are affected, combining neuroimaging, neurostimulation, biomechanical, virtual reality, and psychophysical techniques. She compares groups with no history of concussion to those who have fully recovered and those with persistent symptoms. This approach has the potential to identify the neurological changes responsible for persistent post-concussion symptoms. Uh, Her educational background is pretty extensive. Megan completed her undergraduate degree in life science and a master's in physical therapy from Queen's University, as well as her PhD in neuroscience at the University of Waterloo in 2018. She is currently a VISTA postdoctoral fellow through York University and Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. Megan and I go way back. She's been kind of a mentor for me throughout my own PhD and has always been uh, kind of a sounding board for... (laughs) When I've got any kind of questions or things going on through my uh, academic career and even my professional career, so I'm really excited. We've done a few podcasts in the past, so today we're really just going to dive into her story and her kind of career path as well as her current research and uh, certain opportunities that she's pursuing today. So welcome to the podcast, Megan. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's awesome to catch up because we haven't really chatted much throughout COVID, but um, I'm sure lots has been going on and you're back in the lab, so things are kind of rolling again. Yep. Yep. It's great to be back. Um, uh, We were shut down for a little while and that was uh, obviously necessary, but um, not really awesome, but it's, uh, we're back now, so it's good. Yeah, that's great. You've got such a cool uh, setup going at Toronto Rehab. So we'll get into that a little bit later. But um, I think a lot of people listening would be really interested in to hear kind of what your background has kind of led to where you are today and sort of how you started out from just kind of physiotherapy school um, to getting into academia again and kind of the pursuits that uh, you went after from there. For sure. Um, yeah, so like you said, I did my undergrad and my physio degree at Queens and I finished, uh, I finished physio school in 2008 and, um, started working right away in both outpatient orthopedics and pediatrics. And I wasn't really sure where I wanted to end up, but at the time, uh, it was easier to find two part-time jobs than one full-time. So I kind of did both. And, um, eventually I sort of went the outpatient orthopedics route, um, for no reason other than, uh, I had more opportunities available in places that I wanted to live. Um, 
And I uh, ended up with the opportunity to do the Fowler Kennedy Sport Physio Fellowship. And this was in, um, I did that, I started that in 2010. Um, which was an amazing opportunity. I was the team physiotherapist for all of the sports at Fanshawe College, which sounds like a whole lot of work, except we only had um, four teams. So, but I, I did all of the coverage for all uh, all four varsity um, teams. And uh, so it was really, really cool. I, I got to see a whole bunch of really cool things. And I worked with amazing, uh, amazing, amazing mentors at, at Fowler Kennedy. And when I finished that, I wanted to do the Sport Physio Canada certificate exam, um, thinking that I would do more field work and stuff. Um, so I was studying for the exam, um, and I had at this time left Fowler Kennedy. And a lot of the um, information or a lot of the prep for the exam um, required me to learn about concussion and it was something that I hadn't learned about at all in physio school or if, if they had covered it it was not very extensively and it didn't stick with me but for whatever reason this time around I just I found it fascinating and um, I was working at a sports medicine clinic that had a physician who saw patients who'd had concussions and he and I had uh, a number of different conversations uh, and I finally convinced him that physios have a role to play in patients with brain injuries. And so he sent me a few, like he would refer a few patients. And very slowly, I started to build this practice of people who had, who were having trouble getting better. And at the same time, I'm, I'm reading and I'm studying for the certificate exam. And um, I started to notice in this group of people that I was working with, that a lot of them had trouble in busy environments in, in, you know, the classic example is the grocery store, but they would, they each individuals would say different things. Um, and I didn't have a good explanation because at the time, like I understood that concussion symptoms would get worse if somebody was doing something that was really cognitively demanding, if they were, you know, working on schoolwork or math problems or whatever. And, um, we, we also knew that sports could be really demanding and we had to, we had to kind of dose that carefully or, or not, not sports, but, um, exercise. So we wanted to, we were, we were aware of not overloading people physically or cognitively, but we didn't have this sort of sensory picture. And from what people were telling me, I sort I sort of, started to think that maybe there was a sensory load component to this. Like if people were being bombarded by too much sensory information, the system was getting overloaded just like if it was too cognitively demanding. So I, um, I, I decided, I, so I started, I'm, I'm going back through the, the research, right? Cause I'm preparing for this exam at the same time. And I'm like taking courses and stuff and, and, like, what is the, what do we know? And people would say, yeah, you know, it sounds like it's probably, there's probably a, um, a sensory load and the system's being overloaded. And, you know, there was this whole idea of like, uh, focal versus spatial vision. And so it's probably something to do with that, but like, how, why, what's the story? Do we know there was, we didn't know. So I was like, well, here we go. I'll just, I've got a question let's do some research. Let's figure it out. And, um, I had a, a number of different conversations with people. And one of my old profs from Queens said to me, like, if you're going to do a study, you should go and do a PhD because you should get a credential from the, from the research. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go do a PhD. I just want to, I just like, I just want to answer this question. Like it's, it seemed really simple. Like what is the answer? Yes or no. Let's, this will inform us as we move forward. But, um, in the end I took her advice and, um, went and did my PhD and I did it at the university of Waterloo because I was living in Waterloo and, um, people always, we were talking about this before we started. People always ask like, how do you get involved in research? Well, I think, for all of the good things that have happened in my life, I have just, uh, 
randomly cold emailed somebody, not in my whole life, but in my career, most, most of the best things have started with just a cold email. Um, and I just, I randomly started emailing people. Like I would look on, on department websites and find, uh, scientists whose research programs sounded like my question would fit. Um, and it was crickets. I heard nothing for a few months. And so I was like, okay, you know what? I need to go back to the drawing board. Like, this is obviously not the plan for me. And then about three months later, I got an email from a, a prof at the University of Waterloo who had, um, he, I had emailed him this first round and he replied and he said, listen, I'm really sorry I didn't get back to you. I've been hospitalized for the last three months because I've had a brain injury. And so your question, like your the project you're proposing is really relevant to me. Why don't you come in and we'll meet. Um, one of the best decisions of my career. He was a fabulous mentor and a great person to work with. Uh, so I started my PhD at the University of Waterloo in uh, 2012. And the project evolved to be like, we have, we think it's a sensory overload situation. We think that when there's too much going on for somebody who has had a concussion or have, has had persistent symptoms, there's a problem with figuring with like damping down information that's not relevant. So they go into a grocery store, which is the example people would tell me all the time. And, you know, you walk down the aisle and instead of just kind of being aware that there's stuff on both sides of you, maybe these people are their brains, not, not the people consciously, but their brains are trying to take in too much detail and they're trying to like read the labels on the stuff on the shelves. So, the project I set up was, was giving people two different stimuli at the same time. One of them was relevant and they had to use to do like a motor task and the other information was irrelevant. And we um, collected EEG, which is like uh, you put a cap and you're looking at electrical activity. It's brain waves, basically. Um, and how do their brain waves differ when they have this irrelevant information versus when they have relevant information and um, there were some pretty interesting differences and in the, in the people who'd had concussions versus the people who didn't have concussions and, and all my people were healthy. They were all, um, asymptomatic. They'd had their injuries in the past and they'd recovered, but the way that their, their brains responded to these stimuli, people who'd never had a concussion were the, the responses to irrelevant information were not very, um, they were not as large. So the, the electrical activity was diminished based on whether something was relevant or irrelevant. The people who had concussions in their past who had recovered, they didn't have this same, um, modulation. So when something was relevant, their brain was just as excited by it as when it was irrelevant. And that's, um, that's not, uh, the way that the, the healthy, the controls were, were performing because we want to know context matters, right? When something is relevant, we should pay more attention to it. But when it's like this extraneous thing out in the, in the periphery that we don't really care about, we don't really want to be devoting cortical resources to it. Um, and then we did some work using, uh, CTBS, which is like a, an electrical, uh, electromagnetic tool to change the way that the brain responds. Um, we did some work to show that that prob possibly the prefrontal cortex is part of the network that um, is affected where, you know, that this it's a part of your brain kind of above your right behind your forehead, above your eyes. And it, its job is to help you figure out uh, like higher order stuff. And, we know it's involved in some of these decision decisions about relevant versus irrelevant. And um, when we modulated the activity of the prefrontal cortex, the way that people's brains responded looked a lot like the people with this history of concussion. So we kind of thought that, you know, the prefrontal cortex might be um, not responsible, but involved in, in a, a larger network. Um, so then that was my PhD, wrapped that up, and uh, 
I now work as a postdoctoral fellow, um, which which basically just means I'm a researcher. Um, and I'm I work. It, it's a partnership. My project is a partnership between um, uh, a lab at York University and um, Toronto Rehab. And at Toronto Rehab, I get to use some really cool virtual reality equipment and um, balance testing. Um, it's a really cool place to work. And the some of the themes of the research are the same, like looking at cognitive motor integration and, and sensory integration and how these things are affected when people have had concussions um, from which they have recovered and are no longer symptomatic. And then as well, people who are still symptomatic. So that was a lot of talking. I'll take a little you can you can redirect me if I've gone off topic. Yeah, no, that's it. That's to. awesome. You you have such like a like an extensive history and kind of what you've done too. And I think the, the common theme on this podcast has always been kind of personal questions that you've kind of developed through your own clinical experience that you've kind of just been like sitting there going, no one has an answer for me, and you wanted to try and figure it out. And I think that's one of the key things that I try to explain to people when they ask me like, how did you? how did you decide to pursue a PhD? Cause much like yourself, my initial re reaction was like, I don't want to do a PhD <laughs> because <laughs> it is long and it's really demanding. And I never saw myself doing a PhD, um, in, in the kind of the beginning. And I started out very similar to you with a lot more field work and kind of being more in the trenches of it. But then when you're in those situations, you start to see these things where you're like, well, wait, what, what, like, why is that happening? And what do we do about it? And when people don't have answers, like you're kind of a, a doer. So you want to go figure it out. Um, and I think it's, it's awesome. Uh, the work that you did, I remember a talk that you did a couple of years ago at, um, one of the concussion events that we did at Laurier and you mm -hmm. talked about kind of that sensory gating is, you know, if you had a highlighter and you wanted to highlight one specific thing in a room, for example, your brain just couldn't really function with that highlighter that you couldn't kind of shut the door on other stimuli that you don't want to pay attention to. Um, and I get a lot of patients that have that similar problem. So I think it's a really interesting thing that you're working on because now you're kind of bridging that fundamental work that you did originally with much more clinically applicable work um, directly with, like you said, a lot of different interventions. There's a long list there that I almost stumbled over in your bio. Um, so with that, why don't you explain a little bit more of like kind of what exactly you're looking for? or in the different kind of lenses, I guess, that you're viewing it from, because a lot of the different like sort of testing that you're doing looks at it from different perspectives rather than just kind of using one analysis. So yeah. um, I think that's really, really cool. Yes, it, there, it, it, it's a lot of moving pieces, but there's kind of a like a, a theme, at least in my head. So it, it comes, like you said, it all comes back to like the clinical part, right? And um, I... I, I saw a lot of patients whose post-concussion symptoms, whose persistent symptoms um, related to like dizziness and vertigo. And, and because I, I once I kind of had this concussion practice, I, I dove a little bit more deeply in, into vestibular physio. So I, I started working a lot, a lot with people who had uh, post-concussion, like vestibulovisual post-concussion disorders, if you're going to follow that sort of three disorder system. And all of the tools I had to uh, assess people or track the progress, I felt that there were two big problems. And first is that we rely a lot on asking patients to report their own symptoms. And um, that's problematic for a number of reasons. But if you're having a good day, you're going to report your symptoms differently. Like, like if you're having a happy day, like if something good happened to you outside of your concussion, whatever, you got a promotion at work, you're going to report your symptoms differently than if it's raining and the bus drove by and splashed you. But like, there's so many factors that uh, impact a symptom self-report measure at the best of times. And at the worst of times, it's not just subconscious bias, but these these kinds of tools are um, open to deception. So if we can come up with something um, that is more objective, we subvert those problems. And and also there's this growing idea that symptoms get better 
before full neurological recovery has has occurred. So even if we get better at reporting symptoms, that may not be the best tool to use anyways. The second problem, I think, is that a lot of the tools we use right now look at sensory systems separately without looking at how they interact, which is how we um, go through our daily lives. We, we integrate information from different senses. And, and I'm particularly interested in vision and vestibular sense in the work that I'm doing right now. Um, and to function in a complex environment, we need to integrate information. Um, and a lot of the things that, that people talk about after having concussion, having, having problems with, require visual, visual and vestibular coordination. So um, that this comes back to the grocery store. And it's not just the idea of, you know, there's too much to look at. Like I, I gave that example before, but that's a little bit overly simplistic. When you're going through a grocery store, there's a lot to see but you have to navigate through that environment while you're looking at stuff. You have to think about what you need to buy and, you know, what you have coming up in, in, in the week that you're buying for, and you have to plan and execute different movements and you have to move around people. There's, it's, it's a lot more than just a visual situation. So um, we need tools that go beyond symptom measures and we need tools that assess people in the way that they function in the world. So my goal is to start to develop a real world relevant way to assess how people with concussion cope with these, these multi-sensory challenges that they encounter during their ADLs, their activities of daily living. So um, I, like I said, I do, I do research in a, a virtual reality environment, which is known as Street Lab. And it's fantastic because it's a, a I think it's a 240 degree screen. It's, it's almost, it's like three quarters of, of a surround screen. And um, we've designed, we have an amazing uh, computer uh, or video game designer, and he's, he's designed this grocery store simulation. And I stand people at the start of an aisle and, they, and the visual scene moves to simulate moving down a grocery store aisle. But because they're not actually moving, there's um, a, a mismatch in what their vestibular system is telling them. And we have them on a force platform. And we, we look at, the force platform allows us to look at balance responses or postural sway, because that's something that has the potential to be objective. Um, we have measurements that we can, we can quantify stability. Um, so we can look at how balance changes when these indicators of visual motion conflict with the other signals, because we, we know that to maintain balance, we use vision, we use vestibular sense, and we use somatosensation or, or proprioception. But when one of those conflicts with the others, how does the brain manage that conflict and how does that affect balance? And then how is that different in somebody whose brain is functioning differently? So it's, it's unique because we have this it's a lab, right? We have all of the safety measures that come with being in a lab. We have these laboratory-based methods, but we're able to link that to everyday functional activities. Um, and then that, that has real implications for how we clinically manage these patients. Um, and I'm, I am most interested in people in um, middle adulthood. I don't know what the right term is. I've used working adults a few times, but some people don't like that because not everybody, I would argue that everybody does work, but some people interpret that as just working outside the home. But anyways, I think concussion research has focused a lot on kids and athletes. And I think there's this, this group in the middle that um, struggles with persistent symptoms and, uh, but they're, they're huge contributors to the economy. Like people, if people can't get back to work after concussion, like that has big implications for families and, and lives and stuff. So um, that's kind of the population I tend to focus on. And I'm, I'm interested in how we can inform these return to work decisions with, with good evidence. Yeah, that's awesome. So I actually commonly see, and you do, you nail it on the head when you said a lot of the research does focus on specific groups, because um, I think it's more, like just based on the sporting population and we see sport related concussion 
And typically like your kind of middle, middle-aged adult kind of your, I'm thinking more of the 30 plus crowd. Um, they're more along the lines of the retired athlete, if not like more recreational to, you know, they didn't sustain their concussion via sport. Um, so actually I see more of those people probably in my clinical practice now than I do. And mainly because sports aren't probably like, they're not on right now because of COVID, but, um, I'm getting more of the persistent cases from those kind of middle-aged adults. And so, and I do think it is incredibly relevant because those people are trying to, you know, return just like their livelihood of their occupation or, um, you know, taking care of their family properly. Like those things are really important. And it, it's, you know, and we, I think we've take, taken notice of that more because of COVID because of the changes in lifestyles and, yeah. you know, importance of being able to work um, yeah. and be able to do your job and also manage maybe homeschooling and do all these other things. So it's been a whole like kind of, you know, spin on things this year. But um I think it's really, really interesting. Um, it sort of reminds me of the, you probably read this paper, the National paper with the moving room paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, the Toronto rehab folks probably have, have looked into that one, but the um, when they looked at the manipulation of the visual scene and then they were actually just standing still and people kind of responded like the, the floor was moving, yeah. um, but yet only the walls were kind of inducing some visual motion. And so I commonly hear this reported um, by patients that, you know, and they always say, oh, it's always when I'm moving or something. It's not really like specific to one movement. It's like if I bend over and come back up or if I'm driving and I'm kind of like looking around and it's this idea of like this kind of like visual dominance, I sort of call it in reference to maybe like the vestibular information maybe isn't as reliable. So we're relying so much on vision that when visual motion is incurred, that that actually throws people more off balance. Would you agree with that? Um, or yeah, we somewhat. are we are very visually dominant, like as as people, right? And you like think about. Um, I, I think an example that everybody can relate to is uh, the moving train. So you're on a train, or a whatever. Um, I don't live in Toronto, so I take the train a lot. So um, we're gonna we're gonna be we're on a train, and the, there's a train beside you, and the train beside you starts to move. And you have this full visual field, um, like visual motion stimulus. That's your whole visual field looking out the window. And you get the feeling that you are the one moving, even though you're, you have no other cues to, um, indicate movement. You have that like perception, you, you buy into the illusion because there's all this visual motion around you. So yeah, vision, vision is really important to how we perceive uh, our movements through the world. Yeah, definitely. I think like I get, I've heard the report of, you know, sitting in a parked car and even the car beside them moves. And then Um, you slam on the brakes. Yeah. And a, and a person's just like, Oh, I felt like I was moving. Um, and I, I think that it's the vestibular system is kind of like you said, it's not our dominant system. We don't really consciously, we're not aware of it. I think as much as we are with vision, obviously, um, because it's something we directly just perceive, but, um, I think that people don't realize they have a dysfunctional vestibular system because of necessarily like they don't really, I guess they don't always get dizziness with it or it's just more of a, some people get more cognitive fatigue from that dysfunction rather than like just purely a dizziness. And they're saying, oh, I'm not dizzy. I just get really, really tired and different other symptoms like that. So I find that kind of just in recent years, I've been looking more into to the link between the two and you know you mentioned even just navigating a store for example and being able to kind of like decide what you need or find it and just like kind of navigate through people moving around you and you know not bumping into things um so there is a big kind of like that perception to action piece which I always kind of refer back to but um it seems very similar to that and and so I guess what you're really trying to do is uh like kind of bring all those things together and I don't know if you're including like other measures to determine if there is more purely like a cognitive versus vestibular are you screening these people with certain things as well yeah yeah there's a whole screen that goes in so we'll do uh like a dynamic visual acuity to see what the vestibular system is uh how the vestibular system is functioning and then there's you know a vision screen and a cognitive screen and um some other vision like visual perceptual tasks to kind of get a picture and then we're looking at also um 
the idea of how susceptible people are to that. So that train illusion that, or the, the car and the car beside you starts to move that feeling where you, that illusory self motion, like you get the illusion that you are moving that's known as vection. So we're looking at that as well to see if that relates. Like if, you know, you, you get these postural changes, uh, if there's some relationship between your, your postural stability and your ability to induce this vection feeling, um, so right. there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes along with it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm, the more I get into research, I realize like how hard it is to actually look at this population because, you know, we're looking for at the beginning, you said you want to find, figure out yes or no, is this happening? Yeah. But you're never going to find a yes or no. It's usually what you're looking at across the board of variability. <laughs> um, because, <laughs> that, was a very, that was a very naive view. Yeah, yeah I, I had the same idea, though. Yeah. Oh, they're just going to be like, it is or it isn't. That's going to be black or white. Um, but, of course, it's very gray. Um, and uh, so I, I wonder, because I've been reading a lot more about kind of like clustering people in certain ways or kind of like identifying more of the heterogeneous um, presentation based on like whether these people may have a cognitive like maybe they in their screen they had um you know they're more susceptible to that vection you spoke of or perhaps maybe they have more of a cognitive component are you going to try and kind of pool people based on that like based on what you find I guess that's going to be kind of how it plays out but um I guess more so like instead of looking at kind of like a straight answer are you looking kind of across the board with different measures yeah ideally um, it, it all depends on numbers, right? Like, uh, and, and COVID isn't making, uh, recruitment any easier, no, it's but <laughs> it would be great if I could have enough, uh, like, like a large enough sample size that I could look at people who were, who, who showed more, you know, susceptibility to, to vection or more, um, visual dominance, or if I could kind of pull those people out and look at them differently, um, it remains to be seen whether that will happen. But I think, you know, like brain injuries are tricky to study at the best of times because um, they're so different. Like every, every brain injury is an individual presentation. And with some types of brain injuries, we can, we can be a little, we can group them a little bit better because we know, you know, there's some imaging and it's a specific area that's affected or whatever we don't have that with concussion. We have these symptom clusters where some people have symptoms that are more exacerbated by exercise. And some people have symptoms that are more related to probably a whiplash type injury, but we're still like, it's all still coming back to the symptoms that people are telling us. We don't understand enough about the neurophysiology of this injury to be able to say, this is a different type of concussion than this, you know, I'm talking with my hands, but group A has a different type of concussion than, than group B. We don't, we just don't know. And, and it may in, in the future come out that, you know, concussion is not just one uh, homogeneous injury or one, one population, but we're not at that point yet. So um, it, it, hopefully we will be able to, it comes down to, did you look at the right thing to be able to tell if these people are different? And hopefully by doing a whole bunch of baseline measures, we can, we can um, understand individual differences a little bit better um, and then have the numbers in the study have a large enough uh, study population to be able to uh, see some group differences but I think a lot of the 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 really important thing when looking at a group like this or a a condition like this is looking at variability between people and and you know variability in responses and what we saw in uh, my PhD work was that the the control the the healthy population people were a lot more similar um, to each other and then in the in the group who had had a, a history of concussion, people's responses were like the, the range of responses was much wider. Um, so, and that, and that may be where we're at right now. Like we just, we're not able to break the concussion group up small enough. So we just have this really wide variability in the group. Yeah. I've definitely kind of run into that myself with, you know, trying to group people based on like, 
you know, are they different? But then yet the difference is actually more across like within that group themselves rather than being like the specific, you know, average of just the concussion group being different from the control group. It's never come down to that in really anything that I've done in my own work. But usually it's this all of a sudden we're like, well, why is this like, why are these people all so different? But it comes down to, you know, of that kind of third up to 30%, I think is probably more accurate. But if people who have those more prolonged, um, symptoms versus people who recover kind of faster without those kind of prolonged uh, difficulties with symptoms. So I think that that when you kind of cluster, especially like when you just take people acutely kind of on intake, you're never going to be able to capture it. But especially looking at more prolonged cases, you might find that there are some more similarities based on kind of the pool that you get. um, And perhaps just like the way that they kind of come into your lab um, being kind of you know, through whatever sort of, you know, rehab they've maybe pursued is maybe how they're coming in, right, through your recruitment yeah. processes, which is great. But then it also creates kind of like a a sample based on, you know, if it's coming in through a certain clinic or something that that oh. also kind of affects it, too. So it's really it comes down to this huge conundrum of like, what's the best way to run a study? Um, and it is it does make it really difficult. So like you're taking on a huge undertaking with all this. Um, but I wanted to touch on something you you referred to is just looking at like mood and I know you're you're a big advocate for kind of the biopsychosocial approach being applied to concussion as well as just like pain science Um, and you talked about whether someone's having like kind of a happier mood day or whether they're kind of more down in the dumps kind of day Um, and are you doing any sort of measures for like more emotional or um, like psychological kind of baseline yeah yeah we I uh I spoke to the people at the Hall Ellis Clinic uh, at Toronto Rehab, which is a which is a concussion clinic there, um, and they directed me toward a uh, personality inventory, which I can't I can't remember the name at the moment. But the idea is like you look at um, personality factors and resilience and things that um, will affect your response to injury, um, just like in your own personal makeup and, and, you know, in the end, is that related? Is that a a variable that we can trace back to anything? I don't know, but I think it's an important thing. I I am, I'm a big fan of the biopsychosocial model. And I've been doing a lot of reading about that lately because I'm, um, I think we could, I think we, we, can and probably should apply it systematically in uh, conditions beyond pain, but actually doing that in a, in a clinically relevant and useful way, I don't think we've kind of uh, laid out how to do that yet. Um, So I've been reading a lot about that and, and uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of like inherent factors that we need to capture as well. So the, I can't, the name of the personality inventory escapes me, but that's kind of my attempt to do that. We can include it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, people are really interested. They can send um, me if they're really interested. I, there's probably like two people that want to know, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting though, because the group that you're focusing in on are probably more likely to have a lot more life stressors and, you know, different variables rather than like kind of adolescents and younger adults have less responsibilities in general. So, you know, whether they have families to look after or like other dependents, um, like the kind of job that they have, um, all those different things that perhaps the injury may be kind of removing them from that would be causing a lot more of like financial stress, um, like, and just adding a lot more other variables there that make that a much more complicated group to study too, which I think it's really important to identify some of those other things. Um, especially when people are looking to return to work and, you know, there's stress around that or, you know, like whether someone's like a teacher, for example, and it's very seasonal of kind of like coming back to school year in in September is very different. Like when they've got summer to kind of, you know, take the time if they need to, um, or whatever they're returning to work, there's just a lot more demand there. And so, um, I find that I'm definitely trying to incorporate that more with the patients that I am consulting and treating. And, um, I think, I think it is something that is underutilized across the board. And it's not taught well in general, I don't think, in programs right now. Um, again, I can't speak to currently, but you probably have a better idea based on your involvement with that. Um, so in the, like, I guess the with your end goal in this, 
would it be that you want to incorporate, like be able to, um, I guess, indicate whether like something like VR could be applicable to clinical use more so, and I'm assuming not more in like the cave environment like you have at the street lab, but even in like an Oculus type of VR, um, you know, is, is that something you want it to eventually translate into clinic that actually clinicians could be using something like you've created um, and translating that into actual application? Yeah, I think, and I don't know so much about the tool. Like I, yeah, a, a big, uh, a big VR cave is, is not um, practical for most places. Um, but I think if, you know, VR may just be a, a, a research tool to understand the relationship between um, these these factors, the vision and, and the other senses and, and how they uh, impact balance, um, it may end up being part of uh, an assessment tool down the line or, or we may be able to turn to something else, um, you know, looking at, at balance more specifically if we can recreate the sensory conditions outside of VR, um, which is probably not as likely, but who really knows? I, I look at what I'm doing right now as trying to, uh, it's, it's probably uh, foundational or fundamental work that's going to, I hope, down the line lead to uh, changes in how we do our assessments. Whether that means we use VR for assessment or we have um, new assessment tools that we can draw on, I'm not, I'm not sure yet how it will look. Um, my work with, uh, the, the, the fact that I have a partnership with York, um, I work with a, a professor who's developed, uh, a tablet based, uh, reaching and pointing tool and, and Joe Herdebeast, who you interviewed has done a lot more work in this with this than I have, but we're also using that, um, because some of the work that Joe did showed that this tool is sensitive to, uh, changes in brain areas that also relate back to um, vestibular and visual processing and integration. And, you know, maybe there's a relationship between some of the, the things that I'm measuring on these lab-based tools. Maybe there are certain things that we can pick up on these more clinically deployable tablet-based tools. And if we can understand the relationship, then we... Uh, we can interpret the results from these tablet-based things um, in a different way or in a different population or, or something. So that, so uh, Joe's birdie. It's birdie, birdie, yeah. Birdie, yeah. Um, which is, it stands for brain dysfunction indicator, this tablet-based software that uh, Dr. Lauren Sergio has developed. We use that as well um, as, as one of those um other measures that helps us get a fuller picture of what's going on with these people. And I think something like that is probably where um, that's probably what's going to end up being more useful clinically. Um, the I'm just, hopefully what I'm doing will it help us interpret that data or, or uh, use it more sensitively. Yeah, to determine kind of how those real world experiences translate into the clinical findings. And yeah. I think like overall, it's you want to create more objectivity. And I think that's a goal for a lot of us is trying to figure out ways that, you know, you can quantify something or give show people to be able to track it rather than being a subjective um, report or a subjective observation, like balance in particular is something that is objectively observed and we don't really quantify it, but yet we tell people it's either worse, better, unchanged, whatever. Yep. But how do we actually know? And that's yeah. one of the things that really, <laughs> yeah. um, resonates with me a lot more. Um, and I'd love to be able to have a force play I'm, I'm in practice, like I've worked on that, but it's not accessible for everybody. No. Um, and so certain tech is, you know, and it's the amount of tech that you can acquire is again, it's an accessibility financially, um, whether it's practical for clinics to, to use. And I think VR is definitely something that could be practically used. I just don't know, like we haven't created like a robust enough, um, robust enough, uh, assessment measure rather than like interventions. Yeah. There's software out there you can buy that is used as an intervention, 
but we don't really have VR assessments. So like it is something that you could assess with other tools and then maybe use VR as an intervention measure, like whether you create a world where they're having to navigate a grocery store, a mall or something that's like similar to that, whether it's a crowded area with lots of stimuli. Um, I think those are feasible, but like it's just so far, so much work has to be done to actually get there. Um, like any assessment tool goes through a lot of rigor, uh, rigorous testing. So, um, yeah. you know, it's, there's a lot of private companies out there that come out with things, but again, they have to be validated and um, determined to be reliable for their testing. So I think what you're doing is like a huge step in understanding what a lot of these other measures are figuring out, like whether they correlate to each other to be able to say whether, you know, you can use that birdie to identify people who have trouble with this potentially, or maybe there's a correlation between those findings. Um, and even some other things. So, uh, you know, it does inform a lot of people about those, how those things are actually, how we can interpret some of those findings better. Um, and so for you, I guess, like moving forward, um, and kind of, I guess, in your goals for what you're going to do, kind of taking these projects forward, obviously finishing them is goal number one. I'm with you on that, uh, (laughs) because of COVID delaying everything for so many months. Um, but I guess you're you're kind of getting into some teaching and other pieces. So why don't you speak a little bit to that and how you're kind of, I guess, taking some of the work that you've done and maybe translating in those ways as well. Yeah, um, I yes, it would be great to get these um, studies wrapped up and out there. And um, but, you know, we're I think we're all in the same boat. So that that's at least comforting. Um, the. I don't know what the long-term plan is. There hasn't really been, and, and and this is very hard for me because I am a planner. Like I, that's what I do. Um, but from the beginning, you know, sending a, a cold email to somebody and um, having it work out really well, I haven't had a really, um, I haven't followed a really strict plan through this part of my career. Um, I really like teaching. And I've done it for uh, a long time. I put myself through university teaching swimming lessons and um, kind of haven't stopped since then. But um, so now I'm, I've been doing, I've been teaching online uh, post-professional courses for a while. I've started this year, uh, this month, actually, beginning of August, I started teaching with McMaster in their physio school, um, which I really, really enjoy. And, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to develop those skills. It's been really, um, really interesting because I have been teaching online to practicing clinicians for uh, probably three or four years now, but COVID has changed a lot of the way that we teach at the university level and, and particularly teaching physio students who need to develop hands-on skills. So it's been, um, a crash course in teaching uh, like pedagogy and learning how to teach and learning how people learn, which I've found really, really interesting. And there is so much more available now in the last kind of six months about how to develop good courses and how to, um, you know, uh, the, the experience of being a teacher. So I'm, I'm really enjoying learning more about that. Um, I don't know where that's going to lead. I don't know if that's going to end up being a full-time thing or, uh, I, I don't know. My, my ultimate goal would be to be continued doing this research. I really, I love what I do. I, I always say I have the best job in the world. Um, and I, I love doing research and getting paid to ask questions. Um, so I, I yeah, that would be my ultimate goal, but um, I'm learning that I really like this type of teaching and uh, working with um, physio students and, and healthcare students. And um, so that may be part of the future as well. Um, it's, uh, it, it remains to be seen. I probably have another year left uh, of my postdoc and um I'm going to try to explore what other opportunities I can and see where 
I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I feel like all of 2020 is like a crash course in learning how to do everything differently. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much just like everything is kind of unforeseen of what the next year or two will even bring for most people. So, um, you know, it is, it, you said it's a lot more comforting when everybody else is kind of in this same uncertainty boat. So, um, I, yeah. I think it's a lot and easier it's, it's to navigate. Like a, yeah. And I always say, you know, I, I works clinically and I, I worked clinically all through my PhD and I, I really enjoy it and I love working with the patients. And, um, so I, I, I could always go back to that, but what I'm realizing is what I would be going back to is very different from what I left. Healthcare has changed a lot. Um, so that's, it's kind of everywhere you turn, like teaching looks different than it ever did before learning for our students. Like our, our physio students coming out now are going to have, um, skills that we certainly didn't have like they're going to learn how to do an online uh you know assessment and treatment whereas we were all kind of just muddling through for the last six months um and uh yeah research is changing too so it's um interesting to it, it, it's really cool to watch but it's uh, doesn't help with making plans and knowing where i'm going to be I feel you on that. I feel the same way where I'm much more a planner for longer term, but like, I feel like I'm moving week to week right now and it's very, um, I guess frustrating, but I think you said it best for like any kind of students or clinicians who are interested in kind of thinking that, cause I think from their lens, it looks like, you know, someone like yourself had this all kind of planned out and that it was like, you know, like, from the get go, you knew you were going to go into this and this, but oh, God, a common no. theme across all of these things. <laughs> and even like Joe herself said, this is like, you know, never saw herself doing a PhD, didn't really know what that research was going to look like until really you probably, and it probably evolved even as you were in it. Like I know for myself, my research has changed completely from when I started. Um, and then where you are in your postdoc is completely oh, yeah. something that's kind of just come up and you kind of work by the year. It never really, it's not yeah. like in a, that far in advance that you plan for. Um, so being flexible in that process is hugely important. I think a lot of like, especially like physio and healthcare students they are planners like everybody kind of has that same personality trait of being that type a planner that like wants to have their future plan now yeah. um, they want their next five years planned and I think one of the biggest lessons you learn throughout academia and even a, in something like a, a clinical career is, is that you know it is unpredictable and you're probably going to make changes and kind of pivot or whatever you're going to do um, whatever it's this whole society doing it together or whether it's just yourself <laughs> and what your uh, interests are so um, and I mean, I had, I had two kids too, right? Like I had a, yeah, I had my first child during my PhD, which is, I mean, the, the, it was great. Uh, it was well for me. No, it's not uncommon, but there's a lot of people that tell you that's a terrible idea. And then, um, I had, I had my second son, um, like three months into my postdoc. That was not awesome. That was not good timing, but, um, you know, like I had applied for the, the postdoc grant and gotten turned down and found out I was pregnant and then uh, got it uh, a few months later. So it was all like it's it's all beyond your control. Yeah, exactly. And that's where like you can't just panic every time something doesn't go exactly your way because likely <laughs> something is going to work out in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think honestly, like the students now are just going to learn how to adapt and, you know, be able to work with this kind of more hybrid model of telehealth and in clinic. And it's going to be really interesting to see how some of the measures that we use for concussion care, vestibular care, um, and balance assessment, like, you know, I've been kind of winging those things through telehealth, but you know, there hasn't been any research to really say how we can do these things and how valid they are. And really it's like, well, is it better just to kind of do something and, you know, intervene and start somewhere or to be perfectly valid and objective about it, you know, via telehealth when we just are learning how to use it um, yeah. and for most people. So um, that's going to be really interesting to see how the next couple of years rolls out and how we evolve that way. Because um, I think it'd be really neat to have some ways to remotely test and evaluate people um, to create accessibility to different practitioners and also just be able to reach a kind of broader geographical area even um yeah and I think you know things. looking at these these tablet-based measures that that both Joe and I have used um I think that's 
that's part of why I don't tie myself to like VR is is the future because yeah. I I don't know like if we're all if if telehealth is here to stay which I firmly believe that it is um, we need things that don't tie us to a physical location and you know having a tablet based measure having a a web based measure that you know you can download an app and have your results sent to your physio but then your physio can interpret your results and know a little bit more about what's happening kind of below the surface I think that's um I think that's probably our future yeah for sure it's there's starting to see certain companies move that way um with different apps and different things that you can use and I'm, I'm definitely trying to figure out some of those things myself still of like how I can utilize that with some of the telehealth patients I see um so yeah, it's it's super interesting. Like I said, you you feel like it's like even a project like yourself is a huge project, but even in the grand scheme of like how it's going to contribute is is you know like typically a smaller dent in things, but it's still a stepping stone for a lot of these other pieces to be pulled together and you know build the future of what health healthcare is going to look like, um, which is super you know very very cool. Um, so why don't uh, we're getting around to the hour here? So why don't you um, share? I know. Uh, you did have um, your kind of clinic, clinical education um, yes. courses on Embodia. Um, is there yeah. anything you want to share or your Instagram or website, anything like that um, you can share for everyone? I do have a website. It is uh, www.meganadams.com. Um, I have stopped doing Instagram because I was doing such a bad job at it. And it just became another one of those things that I was like, you know, I really should post something. I really should get on that. And I got tired of saying should to myself. So I just shut the whole thing down. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at Megan Adams PT. And yes, I have courses on Embodia. I am, oh, Megan, sorry. Yes, M-E-A-G-H-A-N. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Isn't that the only way to spell it? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So MeganAdams.com, MeganAdamsPT on Twitter. And um, I have courses on Embodia. I'm in the process of uh, doing some updates on those, um, which I have been in the process of doing for a long time now. COVID did not speed that up. But, you know, um, it, one day. It's like everything. Day. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I, I just keep saying anybody who uh, starts taking the courses now, they will get the updates for free when they are ever published. So perfect. that's all good. Um, yeah, I think that's that's where you find me. And there's a link to email through the website. Um, so if you really have questions that I didn't answer. Um, yeah, we'll post that are there in the show notes for uh, anyone who wants to reach out um but yeah thank you so much for for joining me you have such a wealth of knowledge I feel like we could talk for a long time about different things um but yeah it's been excellent like taking some time out of your busy schedule I know you're getting kind of ready to start teaching or if you're already teaching um you know and you are managing two children at home and everything too so a lot a lot of things going on a lot of balls in the air so um I really appreciate your time to to join me here no, anytime. It's it's always fun to chat with you guys. Um, yeah, my son, my my six year old, has just recently gotten into podcasts himself. So I was telling him that I was going to be on a talking on a podcast. He thought that was pretty cool. So, You're the uh, cool mom. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. Well, thank you everyone for uh, listening to the Thrive Neurosport series. Uh, you can find me. I do have Instagram. <laughs> I'm at Thrive Neurosport. <laughs> Uh, And you can learn more about clinical neurosport education on my website, thriveneurosport.ca. But until next time, keep thriving on, friends. Concussion Talk Podcast is presented by HeadCheck Health. HeadCheck Health bridges the gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology. Join organizations like the Canadian Football League, Track Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada who rely on HeadCheck Health to improve communication and optimize care. Visit HeadCheckHealth.com for more. Music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound. www.bensound.com
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.